You're listening to ATN Perspectives. And welcome to ATN Perspectives. I'm Luke Sheehy, the Executive Director of the Australian Technology Network of Universities, and this is our podcast where we talk things higher education, research, international education, politics, and all things that impact the great Australian universities in the ATN network. I'm absolutely delighted for the first podcast for 2023 to be joined by the Vice-Chancellor of RMIT University, Professor Alec Cameron. A warm welcome to you, Alec. Good. Thanks, Luke. I'm very much uh, looking forward to the to the podcast. It's been fantastic to not only work at RMIT as part of our directorate over the last 12 months, but it's almost we've been here the same length of time as you, Alec, 12 months. So it's been an incredibly busy year, I think, as the world starts to open up. And of course, us working on what it means to be a collective group of universities and the the shared mission that we have across the ATN. I think one of the most important attributes of our collective mission at ATN is the value that we place on uh, our individual universities place on playing an active role in society. I wonder if you'd like to comment on RMIT's strategy and and, and the view that RMIT takes as a a civic institution in the city of Melbourne and the state of Victoria, but more importantly, globally. And in a post-pandemic world, you know, how's that changed? How's that been tested? You know, I'd probably start with a fundamental premise, which is that all universities have a fundamental purpose, which is to advance knowledge through its, through its development and propagation. So basically we research, we publish and we teach. But for an applied university such as RMIT, our focus is very much on knowledge for practical application in the real world. So education for careers, research for application and implementation. And particularly, we lean into current issues. So, you know, universities generally making a contribution to solving our biggest global challenges and and RMIT is a part of that. So issues such as a sustainable environment, inclusive economic development, improving community health and welfare, of course, which has been very much front and centre during COVID. And critical for RMIT is that social dimension that you've identified. So serving the community by using civic partnership to advance social innovation, smart and sustainable cities, uh, very pertinent to us being an an urban university, and using our relationships and urban presence to increase the scale and benefit of these efforts, including in our case across the Asia-Pacific region. So that very much involves building trust and creating shared benefit for the whole community. So we don't see ourselves as being separate from the communities in which we're located. We see ourselves as being part of the communities and we see our social license to operate our charter being making a contribution very much locally in the places in which we're located, as well as aspiring to, to national and global impact. And it, look, it's it's wonderful to see that. And of course, I think also the cross-collaboration across the ATN on some of these key issues where there is similarities. Focusing now on the student, Alec, I wonder, modern context for a university student, it's it, particularly in Australia, particularly at RMIT, it's it's a global education. There is a focus on, on society and the impact. Students are very interested in it. I think, you know, entrepreneurialism now we... Um, we factor into all facets of economic and social life and students are inspired to do things for improving society and and improving the economy and their own lot in life. What are the kind of aspirations you see that uh, RMIT graduates have and what's the RMIT's aspiration for your graduates in this modern context? Look, I think it's fair to say, Luke, that we and our students share an 
an aspiration and ambition for them to be genuinely contributing global citizens, right? Who you know who've got great values and, and are looking to make an impact with their careers and lives. But coupled in for us very strongly with that is producing highly employable graduates. And I I do think there's in some sense sometimes a representation of false choices presented that either we need to be focusing on producing graduates for the long term who will make a great civic contribution role and that that a focus on employment for education is at odds with that. And I dismiss that completely. I, I do think that we will value most the contributions that our graduates make over their lives and careers. And you know, one of the one of the interests we need to develop within them is an interest in lifelong learning. But at the same time, as we educate our students for life, we need to make sure we do everything we can to assist them getting their foot on that life and career ladder by obtaining employment on graduation. Because I think the biggest impediment for our students to make the contribution they want to make with their lives and careers is if they're not able to get that foot on, you know, on the first rung on the career ladder on graduation. So I'm unapologetic in saying that RMIT has a very strong focus on the employment of our graduates. And I don't see it as a, as a binary choice between saying where we're either producing graduates for, you know, jobs, you know, versus developing them to be global citizens and make an impact over their lives and careers. I think one is just the precursor to the other. And we need to make sure that we are producing graduates who have values, who have lifelong skills, but also have the skills and knowledge that employers are looking for in the first instance, because the reason most of our students come to RMIT and to universities across the ATN, across the Australian sector, is to get that that great start in life, to get that foot on the ladder with a professional career or a vocation or something in terms which, which gives them a vehicle in which to produce their, their lifelong goals. It's very inspiring to see that focus in your strategy and the approach that you take. And also so many of our other ATN members, a very strong focus on student outcomes. And I think you're absolutely right. The skills for work isn't the only game in town. And it's important that we continue to talk about that. There's many things, many attributes to a graduate. It has been a challenging number of years for all of us, right? Particularly those who've been living in Melbourne. It's not to underestimate those living in other parts of the world that have been severely impacted by the COVID pandemic. But after a number of years in working in the city of Melbourne, as we do here at RMIT City Campus, it's bustling. You know, the streets are alive again. The trams and trains are certainly full. People are bustling in and out of pubs and restaurants. So I'm not sure what's happening in all offices, but certainly plenty of office workers coming back to the city. As of the last couple of weeks, we're seeing students from China return and the borders open. Australians travelling back to China, Australians and internationals travelling to and from this great country to other parts of the world. It's exciting. How does it feel for you at RMIT? As I think you mentioned at the start, I've, I've only been at RMIT for a year and have only been resident in Melbourne for the last 12 months. And hence, I need to note that I wasn't in Melbourne for the COVID period. And I agree with you completely that the I think the Melbourne experience was unique in terms of the duration and the severity of the COVID measures that were imposed. So not surprisingly, I think the impacts of that, let me say, COVID adjustment has a long tail. I agree with you. I mean, certainly, you know, 12 months ago when I arrived back in Melbourne, it was still quite quiet. 12 months later, I can say that there is a lot more uh, activity on the streets. The area that we occupy within the city of Melbourne, sort of in the northern part of the city, you know, um, the northern end of Swanston Street, 
you know, where there would be a lot of international students resident in that area and attending RMIT and so forth. There's certainly green shoots. We're certainly seeing that return of students. We're seeing the return of life into the city. And there's a, you know, given the scale of RMIT within the CBD of Melbourne, there's a really strong mutual dependency between the vibrancy of the university and the vibrancy of the city. So, so that's all positive. You know, it's really important for our purposes to see students coming back to campus, not not for us, but for our students. I think what we've shown during COVID is we can provide pretty good education online in terms of the course content, but there's no getting away from the student experiences a lot more than the educational content that they acquire while students. And the, the social life, the student life, the development of our students socially and culturally, to be quite frank, I have a a very very strong view that students need to be on campus to experience that. So it's really important for them, for their development, to be coming back to campus. International students uh, return provides a lot of vibrancy to the city. And as I said, um, that's to the the benefit of the city and to the benefit of us. I think the area that's probably been slowest from our point of view is getting some of our staff back. And, you know, once again, we've got certainly many of our staff who are back. There's certainly those involved in teaching and supporting our students are back on campus. But we've got a lot of staff who, you know, in some sense have embraced the flexibility that has been offered to them during the COVID period. I think that ability in terms of trying to get the right balance going forward is, you know, probably an ongoing challenge for us to work out, you know, what's the, what are the incentives and what are the, what's the rationale for looking to increase staff presence on our campus at the same time. Yeah, and long may that vibrancy increase and continue on campus because it is a lovely thing and many of the ATN universities are, of course, located in the central part of their cities, all their regional cities, and you know play an important role in revitalising cities that have had been very quiet for a number of years. I'm particularly excited about the prospect of more international students coming back to Australia. For those listeners who remember, we had a terrific international education summit hosted by Geraldine Doog back in 2020. When we thought Australia might open up again, of course, we didn't uh, foreshadow things like the Delta surge, et cetera. But it was an, a great exercise in talking about the importance of international education to Australia and building that social license with people from all walks of life in Australia for the case for more international students in Australia in a long-term plan for what has been an important sector. I've always considered, and I've been in this sector now more than two decades, and in particular, I've had a focus on international education for a long part of that. I've always considered RMIT really at the forefront of internationalisation of education in Australia, and if not the world. And it's something that's always been quite an inspiration. And I think it is an inspiration for many. And there are so many attributes to RMIT's internationalization that um, I'd like to discuss with you if we've got time. Firstly, we've recently, or RMIT, of course, has recently celebrated 20 years in Vietnam in country. I mean, that is quite a significant achievement. And I remember talking to your predecessor who, when he was you know, asked to, to talk at an event in Vietnam, that the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, Scott Morrison, was surprised that RMIT was called up to the stage first, but of course it's the largest Australian enterprise in Vietnam. How, how are you going to celebrate and continue that strength of internationalisation, particularly in Vietnam, but other, of course you have offshore campuses as well? Yeah, look, I mean, there's no doubt that, that Vietnam is the greatest success for us in terms of our international activities. That's not to diminish the other activities, but, you know, through a combination of, of you know, no doubt good luck, but also being able to make a decision over 20 years ago to accept an invitation from the Vietnamese government to set up a campus in Vietnam. 
the timing of that, the subsequent execution of that means that today we have now over 10,000 students who are receiving education at RMIT campuses in Vietnam. So we'd be the largest sort of single country offshore campus of Australian University or probably any university within the region. That's substantial. I think the standing that we have with the service that we are providing to Vietnam, to the country, to citizens in that country, to business partners in Vietnam, through our presence there. I think it's hard to overestimate how high our reputation is in Vietnam. I, you know, I sort of give as example, Luke, when I first visited in, uh, I think it was March last year, my first instance visiting Vietnam as the uh, Vice Chancellor and President of RMIT, suffice to say, I had an audience with the Prime Minister of Vietnam. So, you know, I think that sense of our standing in country as Australia's largest services investment in Vietnam is material. And look, the way that we build from that is we are looking to further investment in Vietnam to take further advantage of the opportunity present for us to grow our activities. I think that the mindset for us in Vietnam very much is how do we make a positive contribution to Vietnam? I you know, say it's almost the opposite of having a colonial mindset and saying, well, how do we how do we expand our activity in Vietnam to our benefit? I think we are very consciously focused on saying, how can we make a positive difference in Vietnam? And through that approach, you know, Australian universities don't make money off international campuses. We usually have the opportunity, if we're successful, to reinvest and grow those campuses through being well-run and successful. And that's our ambition in Vietnam. Our ambition in Vietnam is, is to put back some of the surpluses that we've generated through further investment and further growth and continuing to provide a great service for Vietnam, but continuing to build our reputation and profile internationally. Yeah, and that collaborative approach, I think, speaks around the ambition that exists in across the ASEAN region. And I, having spent some time living there in the last decade, it's quite intoxicating, you know, going to these countries that have been transforming from, you know, low to middle income to upper middle income to bordering, moving into the developed category. Yeah, look, I, I find it very inspiring going there. I think the Vietnamese people and their commitment to education and, you know, we see that, of course, in the Vietnamese diaspora, which comes to Australia and how successful they are on the back of, of a great work ethic, a great commitment to education. You're absolutely right. I mean, it is an inspiration and and it's fantastic that Australia can play that role. And I've always, that's one of the reasons why I've thought international education as a sector is so important for a wide variety of reasons. But if we're tapping into that ambition that exists, particularly in countries in the ASEAN region, it is a wonderful thing that we can co-contribute and collaborate with them on that shared ambition. ASEAN, obviously, in the geopolitical and strategic discussions that many of us have around Australia's role in the region. We've had previous prime ministers that think we should be a member of ASEAN, but nonetheless, it's turning 50. RMIT is an active player in the ASEAN region, of course. What's planned for RMIT in this 50th anniversary year? Well, it's not only 50th anniversary year for ASEAN, it's actually 50th anniversary year for diplomatic relations between Australia and Vietnam. So suffice to say, it's only 51 years since the war in Vietnam finished. And the following year, the Australian government and the Vietnamese government um, established diplomatic relations, which is wonderfully, you know, in retrospect, was just, you know, incredible, let me say, response from both countries to having previously been in a, at war with each other. And that is, let me say, very much top of mind for the Australian government and the Vietnamese government this year. There will be prime ministerial ministerial visits we expect from the Australian Prime Minister to Vietnam and his counterpart coming to Australia. So given our presence in Vietnam, we hope to 
participate in in those activities and meetings but i do think it's a great cause for celebration i think the relationship between australia and vietnam given that it was founded in conflict our ability to in some sense immediately respond to that in a very positive way and establish diplomatic relations and be great friends and partners now and i think importantly so you know given other geopolitical tensions in the region yes it's a, you're reminding me alec when i was a younger man uh, celebrating the 40th anniversary when I was working for a minister in Canberra. So I'm now starting to feel my age a little bit. But, you know, it's it, it's fantastic to think about that nearly half of that diplomatic relationship has had RMIT uh, involved in country and has shaped that relationship over the last 20 years of the last 50. So a big congratulations. And of course, RMIT is often envied by other players in the Australian higher education sector because of your success in transnational education. Um, without giving away any of your secrets. What is the secret to success, if you can say it in a non-secret way? Well, look, I, look, I, I don't mean to diminish the, the, the great decisions and execution of my predecessors in this regard, but I think there is still an element of luck. I think, you know, sometimes you get the, you know, you, you respond to the invitation from a government at a particular point in time, and as a consequence of that, that opens up a wonderful opportunity, which we've been able to capitalise on. So, you know, do I think we can do what we did in Vietnam in another country today? My view is probably not. I just, you know, in some sense, the the setting at the time, the unique opportunity we had to be genuinely an international market leader in Vietnam in that role, you know, the space that we had to develop our brand and reputation there. As I said, some of that is down to great decisions and, and great hard work, but it's one of those things that the in some sense, the strategy was a confluence of an opportunity at a particular point in time and a particular development of international activity, which in some sense isn't necessarily the same the same setting that we have today. We will have other international activities that we undertake. I expect during the course of my tenure, we will increase our international presence. But I think the idea that we can just roll out again the Vietnam strategy somewhere else, I think it was just a very fortunate circumstance of setting and timing and as i said wise decisions in retrospect and some great execution and i think that speaks about you know how complex really transnational education the, the recipe for success is and perhaps those listening and those policymakers that are potentially listening around you know who in recent times have seen particularly from previous ministers and, and others at a national level are a push for our sector to go out and do more transnational education, like it's a simple proposition. And I think we do need to continue to have that discussion with policymakers that it does require a whole range of unique characteristics and scenarios to play out. Nonetheless, it can be tremendously successful. And what I've always admired, particularly about RMIT and then Curtin and others that have run successful offshore campuses, is that there's a depth of connect connection to the, the main operations in Australia, uh, and it, it is full degree offerings. And, you know, we haven't gone down the path of other jurisdictions of high volume courses. So I'm very much confident. Yeah, I was going to say, Luke, I mean, there's a bias that, you know, of course, the ones that survive and succeed are the ones that we know and remember. And I, I suppose I'd say, I don't think RMIT has, you know, skeletons in the closet there, but, you know, there's no doubt there are other offshore initiatives that have not been successful and they tend to get forgotten reasonably quickly and filed away. So it's not the case that all international ventures succeed. As I said, the, it's just that our memory is, you know, very much focused on the ones which have been successful and, the, the you know, obviously the ones that are still around and thriving today. 
Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right now and kind of going through the Rolodex of my mind of all the different campuses that have existed, you know, uh, in different parts of the world from different institutions to, that I've enrolled in. Of course, I was lucky to do an offshore experience when I was studying and it is, it is a wonderful thing. Closer to home, though, and I wanted to chat to you, you know, RMIT for more than a century really has, more than a century and a half nearly, has, you know, been giving opportunity for people from all walks of life, the opportunity for skills for work, but more broadly, and those, those other attributes we've already talked about. What does equity look like in a system, right? We're talking about this in the context of the uh, university's accord. I have an ambition for the accord, which is to bake in equity rather than have it as a a subsequent part to a funding system. RMIT is going to play a very large role in advocating that and many other things around the policy settings we need for the future. But coming back to equity, how do we embed it into a new system? Look, and I, I agree with you that, that it is part of our, our legacy at RMIT. We were established as the, the Working Men's College in, in Melbourne back in the late 1800s. So, you know, in some sense, that's, that's where we come from. That's still our purpose is to provide educational opportunity for those for whom in many cases, it wouldn't otherwise be available. We're a dual sector university, so we provide both higher education and vocational education. We are the largest tertiary institution in Australia because across HE and VE, we have almost 100,000 students. So for us, equity is fundamental to our, our mission and our purpose. My sense has always been that equity needs to be not just about getting in, it's about getting on. So, you know, Policies that, let me say, increase the recruitment of international students can only be a first step. You know, it's ultimately we need those new students to higher education, to get into a program, to be supported, to stay the course and graduate from that program and achieve the graduate outcome that was their ambition in enrolling in that program. My sense very strongly is policies that increase recruitment are important, but they're only a first step. And the sector and individual universities, probably with government support, need to make sure that the probably additional needs of some equity students need to be resourced, need to be met. Because the worst thing we can do is provide the opportunity for students from diverse or, or non-traditional backgrounds to come to university and then not support them and then see them fail and then see them have, you know, some sort of hex liability and, and no qualification to show for that, that's, that's not progress. I'm very committed to basically saying, you know, the things we need to look at is, is you know, what's our retention rate for what I call equity cohorts or, or non-traditional cohorts? What are the graduate outcomes that we're achieving? How are we making sure that, that there is no attainment gap, there is no difference in terms of the outcomes that we achieve for those different cohorts. Yeah, and I think the challenge has been with our policy settings, and there has been considerable effort throughout the last four decades to increase participation, but I still think we're stuck in an inputs funding and regulatory system. So, you know, what you're speaking about is what I've been passionate about for a long time, which is supporting students doing their, you know, not just to, just to build the aspiration to get in, but to succeed and have the experience at university and then go on to make a contribution to society. And of course, we hope that the court process is an opportunity for us as ATN universities with a depth of experience with these cohorts to talk about that. And of course, we've had great dialogue already with Minister Clare, who clearly is passionate about ensuring people from all walks of life can get the opportunity of education because he himself and many of us are 
are beneficiaries of university education and him first in family. And that that's a wonderful thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to RMIT, but of course, broadly ATN's contribution to that policy development. A couple of things before we run out of time. We always run out of time, Alec, but um, that's a good thing. I think RMIT has got a new strategy in place and you've talked about this already. I've alluded to the strategy and I had many great positive conversations with you around, you know, defining RMIT's role in society and talking about it as an anchor institution, but of course, that economic development part that universities play, the rise of state governments, of course, state governments have become increasingly interested, rightly so, in the role that universities play in, in building new job opportunities and ideas to shape society and the economy. RMIT's new strategy, though, it's um, you know, knowledge with action. Can you talk to me about what are the key differentiators about the RMIT strategy and how's that going to shape the way we see RMIT operate in, in the years to come? Okay. I mean, there's, there's three, well, three or four key areas to our strategy. One is, you know, the education focus of our strategy is very much focused on lifelong learning. So we are clearly, at, you know, like most universities, the, you know, we have a, a large intake of, of school leavers at the moment, and that's really an important first step that we provide for them in their post-school education and their career-focused learning. But we are very conscious that the speed of economic development across sectors means that, you know, the, the knowledge that is being provided at the first point of post-school education is unlikely to be sufficient to sustain our graduates over the course of their career. And hence, we need to give them the aptitude, the interest in lifelong learning, but also stand ready to support them when they come back to university to obtain new skills and knowledge, either to advance their careers or to change careers because the opportunities are, are elsewhere than their original training. So something that I think we are well set up to do, as I said, I made the comment earlier that we are a dual sector university, so we provide both vocational education and, and higher education. I think some people see that as a, you know, almost a natural articulation for some students will do vocational education and then proceed to higher education. And that is about half of our VE students go on to, to HE. At the same time, we have an equal number of HE students who subsequently do a VE qualification. So that, that ability to, in some sense, provide the necessary both content but also mode of delivery at subsequent career points for graduates is really important to us so i think the challenge for us is we've got no shortage of pathways we've got no shortage of offerings to support our, our graduates over the course of their careers we need to do a better job of putting those things together in terms of articulations in terms of pathways in terms of progression the, the second part about research is, is really doubling down on our reputation for being a, a great applied research institution. We are, I think, a great partnering university. We work very well with, with government. We work very well with business. We work very well with other institutions in terms of playing an important role in the research and innovation system in Australia. And we, once again, unashamedly take great pride in the partnering research that we do through CRCs, through linkage grants, through other partnerships that we have with industry and with government and, and standing ready in that regard. And the other elements of our strategy very much are about the social difference that we are making. We talk a fair bit about our, our civic charter, the role that we want to play with communities. We've got a development just outside the CBD in, in Melbourne to the north of the city, almost adjacent with our existing campus where we have a what we call CBD North, but it, it's really a social innovation precinct. We're very much looking to work with the community to not only provide them with educational opportunities, but to provide them with services 
through our campus and presence in that location. So that's a, you know, another important element for us. And, and the, the last element is leveraging on what we talked about earlier, which is our, you know, our international presence and our role, particularly leveraging Vietnam and more broadly into ASEAN and saying, you know, we've got a significant presence, a significant footprint in Southeast Asia. We're making a big impact there. We want to we want to leverage that. We see ourselves very much as a university of impact within the region. So they're the they're the key themes. I think our philosophy, and I do believe this applies to the other ATN universities. How we think about the the interface of university with external stakeholders. I think there was a historical view in some other sectors, in, that, in some other parts of the higher education sector, where in some sense commercial relationships were a bit at odds with the purity of research. I'd probably say that. The ATN would almost generally accept almost the complete opposite view to that, which is we seek to make an impact in our research in partnership with business, in partnership with government, uh, in partnership with other institutions, and that we're enhanced and we can leverage our own capabilities and provide them as a complementary resource to other key players in the research and innovation ecosystem. I, I think one of the things I want RMIT to be known for is, is very much as a partnering university. I think we perform best when we partner with others and they're going to be either other institutional players and obviously the ATN is a, is a wonderful resource for us. But also, as you said, you know, state government's very much stepping up at the moment, Victorian government very active in, in higher education and similarly our, our industry partners, you know, I, you know, we want to be seen by them to be great, a great university to work with. And we do that not by adopting a, you know, our way or the highway approach. It, it's basically, you know, how can we listen carefully to what their needs are and what the problems are that they're trying to solve and be a genuine partner in those solutions? Alec, yeah, a wonderful explanation then of a very ambitious strategy, but one with key focuses and something that um, I've, you know, had great privilege of seeing developed and kind of rolling out now. So, um, you know, wish you and, and the team all the very best of luck. And, and our final question, I guess, because we have run out of time and you've already alluded to it is, it's a little indulgent question, which I ask most vice chancellors come on about the ATN. But you've talked about, you know, the importance of ATN as a partner. But how do you see universities in the ATN network, you know, and the importance of that collaboration in the Australian and international context moving forward? And 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 what kind of role can we play as a collective in some of these big challenges? I very much value the, our membership of the ATN. Obviously, we're a foundation member of the ATN. And and look, the the original membership, which was the five state-based institutes of technology which had become universities and, and came together to produce the original membership of the ATN and of course you know welcoming the the recent additions relatively recent additions of, of Deakin and Newcastle to that set so you know for, for my my purposes it's clearly a group of universities which have common history which I think are differentiated from universities in different in other parts of the sector I, I think you know, there's a lot of discussion with regard to the accord as to, you know, one of the challenges which has been called out before, which is it looks sometimes as though policy forces all universities almost to adopt a common model. And we value distinctiveness and difference, not just at individual university, but in terms of a set of universities that we think have a, a different place that we play within, within the market and within society. Suffice to say, not, they're, they're wonderful for us in terms of discussing common interests and common ambitions. It's a wonderful resource for us in terms of benchmarking our performance against very much like universities. And it's also a very important forum for us in terms of making a strong case for policy 
for universities like ours and like the, the other members of the ATN who, who do put high value on, on student employability, who do place a high value on working well with business and government and industry to achieve impactful research and also who place a very high priority on the social charter and as you've commented on original membership looking looking very much like urban universities or you know some concentration in that regard you know we've we've got so much is in common and at times when it's difficult to to find alignment between all 40 universities across the australian sector because they are quite different but are but our set is is much more similar than we are different. Well, thank you very much for that contribution to the discussion today. And of course, you know, for your contribution to the ATN over the last 12 months, I really value it. And, and I know that uh, the rest of your colleagues do as well. I'm very inspired by the strategy and whatever we can do in the future as the ATN to support you know, both RMITs, but the collective strategy um, we're looking forward to, especially which I'm re- describing as this reform year while the accord goes on. Alec, we always run out of time when we chat and we have today, but I wanted to thank you very much for joining um, me on our first podcast for 2023 and look forward to continue our conversation both privately and publicly over the period ahead. And thank you for joining us. Good. Well, and um, thank you very much. I very much appreciate the conversation and look forward to our continuing contribution. Please subscribe to the ATN Perspectives podcast via all channels like Spotify, Google and Apple.